Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I'm Pastor Erwin Raphael McManus, and just wanted to thank you for listening. In case you didn't know, I just released a new book. It's called The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything. And you can order it today at thegeniusofjesus.com. Well, welcome to Mosaics. Good to see you guys tonight. Uh, I'm Erwin, in case uh, you don't remember me. And for the last few weeks, we've been diving into the artisan's soul. We've been looking into a new way of seeing what it means to be human and understanding who God is in relationship to us. And to go on this journey together, there's some basic presuppositions you have to embrace with us. That every human being is an artist. That every human being is creative. That we're all artisans and we have the essential tools for the creative process. We have been given an imagination through which we can see and dream and imagine things that no one else has perhaps ever seen or dreamed. And we can materialize that imagination and we become materializers of the invisible. We become creatives by our essence. And that this is the way God designed it. He created you this way. In the same way that, that bees create hives and ants create colonies, humans create futures. Because God places an image of a person that you can become, of a life that you can live, of a world that you can create. And when we see that world, when we imagine that world, and it compels us to courage, to sacrifice, to action, that dream is translated into reality, it becomes the future, our future the world's future. And as we enter into this creative process and we decide to make our lives our greatest work of art, we realize that the same process that is used to create a, a sculpture or a painting or a dance or a song is the same process that we must use when we decide to turn our lives into a work of art. And that every artist in that process must discover their own voice. You see a lot of art that is really imitation and sometimes reflection. Sometimes we relinquish our voice to become an echo because we want to belong so badly. We become an echo of what others are saying to us and about us and we decide to become echoes because when we're echoes we belong but we lose our voice. Sometimes we take that road even further and we become simply noise and sounds. And a part of discovering the artisan inside of us we, is discovering our own voice and being true to that voice and silencing all the voices inside of us that tell us we're less and give power to the voice that calls us to more. And the God who created the universe, who imagined you in his imagination and then created you, that same God spoke and all things came into existence. He knows his voice. And when God projects his voice, beautiful things happen. He speaks and there's light. He speaks and the universe comes into existence. He speaks and there's life on this earth. And the voice of God, the same voice, the same power that speaks into this ever-expanding universe wants to speak into your soul and unleash all that which is beautiful and good and true 
But now we move to the next part of the process. See, a, a part of the discovery of the artisan's soul is to realize that all art is interpretation. All art is our interpretation of reality. It's our interpretation of what matters. It is our expression of self. And so when you're looking at a piece of art and you feel it sometimes pierce into your soul, it's as if the artist is speaking into the perceiver. But at the same time, the artist has opened up their soul, and if we look carefully enough, every work of art exposes the soul, the artisan, themselves. All art is interpretation. An interpretation of what matters, an interpretation of what is, an interpretation of what could be or must be. We are all interpreters of life. Have you ever seen an art piece that you... You had no idea what it meant. I know we're not supposed to say that, but because you know we all get it, right? But have you ever seen a dance? Even here, well, a dance is beautiful. What, what, what does it mean? People ask me that all the time. We would love that. We love that piece. What, what did it mean? Have you ever gone to a gallery because a friend invited you and you didn't want to act like you were not? An artistic elitist, and so you said, oh, of course, I was planning to go see that. And uh, Pollock is here at the Getty, of course I'm going. I don't want to go to the beach on Saturday, I want to go to the Getty and look at Pollock. And, and so you go, and you ever watch people looking at a painting, and they're just mesmerized, astonished, and you're like, what is it? And, and if you have the courage, you'll go, what does it mean? Anyway, whether it's, it's Monet's movements or Picasso's abstractions or Pollock's fractals, you look at these works and sometimes you go, well, what, what, what is the artist trying to say? In fact, a few days ago I was in Florida and we showed one of our short films and, and, and after the, the, the short was over, it's about eight minutes long, there are no words and so there's a lot of room for interpretation. And people found me afterwards and started tracking me down. This, this group of people were hunting me down, going, we want to talk to you, we want to talk to you. And I, and I thought it was about my talk, but I guess my talk was understandable, but my art was not. And they said, we want to know what's the meaning of the film. And I go, I'm not going to talk to you about the meaning of the film. I just kept walking faster. And they just, they just kept walking right with me. They go, no, no, we want to, we, we want to know what, what, what did the film mean? And then one guy said, I know what it means. I know what it means. I just want you to confirm that I'm right. And they just kept walking. And I said, you know, whatever you think the film means, they go, yeah, that's what it means. <laughs> he goes, no, no, we want to. I go, I'm not going to tell you what the film means. And one guy goes, I told you he wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Isn't that a part of what art is? Is, is a part of the discovery of meaning. It's a, it unlocks meaning. It's not simply the meaning that the artist brings to it, but that the perceiver brings to it as well, because all life is interpretation. See, an artist understands that more than anyone, that all art brings in who they are, but it also brings in the person who experiences it. And the art piece is the intersection, the eruption of those two interpretations coming together. I've seen some films that even when I was finished, I had no idea what they were about. And I don't think the director knew either. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was meaning at times, except that a human created it, and so there has to be some kind of intention behind it somewhere. 
See, a, a part of this artistic journey for us is, is that we're all trying to make sense of life. We're all, we're all trying to understand the meaning. And, and so whether you go through pain or suffering, whether you have moments of incredible exhilaration and celebration, whether life has one success after another or one failure after another, eventually you're going to have a moment of reflection and, and you're going to ask the question, what does all of this mean? That's why I love this one particular place in John chapter 9 when Jesus is walking with his disciples and the disciples ask him a question about a man that they saw born blind and they asked him, Lord, why is he blind? Is it his sins or his parents' sins? That, that question always astonishes me. Why, why would they ask that question in front of a blind man? He's not deaf. They can hear them ask this question and their emotional intelligence must have been so low. Jesus is like, I'm really having to work with you guys. And he, Jesus says, there, the man is not blind because of his sins or his parents' sins. You're, you're entirely misinterpreting the situation. Your interpretation of reality is wrong. In fact, you need to flip it upside down because he's not blind because he's being punished by God. Because, see, that was the narrative. That was the interpretation of humanity, that God was angry with the world, that God was a God of wrath and, and God of condemnation and a God of anger, and that every moment of suffering, every moment of anguish, every brokenness, every pain, everything that human beings have ever experienced that brought tragedy and sorrow, that was God's judgment and punishment on us. And that was their interpretation of life. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. This man is simply who he is because God wants to do something beautiful in his life. Because God isn't finished working in his life. And Jesus said, because that's what I'm here to do. Because as long as there's work to be done and time to do it in, we're going to keep working. And then you know the story, most likely, because I, I, I've brought it up several times because I love Jesus' art form. I mean, everybody chooses their own kind of art form, charcoals, pastels, clay, metal. Jesus chooses spit and dirt. And he spits on the ground, takes spit and dirt, turns it into mud, walks over to the blind man, puts the mud on the man's eyes, which I just think is... Um, incredibly um, artistic and abstract. And, and then he says to the man, go and wash. And the guy's standing there blind with spit and dirt and mud on his face. So he finds his way to the pool of Siloam where Jesus tells him to go. And when he goes to the pool of Siloam, he washes his face and he sees. And you think this would be the epic ending of a great story, but that's really where the story is beginning. Because now we move into the interpretation, the interpretation of life. And so it says, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. And verse 8 of John 9, it says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I always thought this was an odd moment. No, he only looks like him. Oh, he's the same guy. He was the blind guy that now can see. And they're confused. I don't know. I don't know if it's him. Looks like him. I'm not sure. I mean, I understand why, why well, like, let's say why Bruce Wayne has to become the Batman. He wears the mask so no one can recognize him. That makes sense, right? Protects his family, his identity, his privacy. I understand why Peter Parker 
puts on Spider-Man, which clearly has muscles added to the suit. And because he doesn't want anyone to know, it's Peter Parker, that's Spider-Man. I get that, but I just never really could understand Clark Kent and Superman. How about you? I mean, how stupid are the people of Smallville? They can't recognize that Kalal is Clark Kent. Not, not because of the cape or the really cool suit and boots, but the glasses. The glasses solve everything. And then he moves to Metropolis to work with hard-nosed journalists, with Lois Lane, who will turn over every rock to find the truth. Nothing is gonna get by her. She's a journalist. Perry White. And that guy's like ruthless. He sees everything for what it is. Hi, Clark. <laughs> Have you seen Superman? No. How do they not see that? I mean, I understand. I, I, I wear glasses. I don't know if you know that. I do, but I don't wear them on stage because I don't want people to be confused that I'm out of town. You see, I was like, you know, because if I wear my glasses, people are going, where, where, where's, where's Irwin, man? Who's that guy? You know, and, and it, it would just be really disorienting for so many people. I mean, I'm telling you, it's irritating at home because I wear my glasses at home to watch TV. And if Mariah comes in and I'm laying on the sofa, I just, ah! Who are you? And it's like, no, it's, it's me, honey. And she goes, oh, daddy. It's like, right? It can be really, really disturbing. Here's a blind guy who now can see, and they're going, I don't know. I don't know if it's him. Whoa, you see the difference? It's like, I don't know. It look, kind of looks like him. I mean, if you saw identical twins, you, you could figure out that they look alike, right? But this guy's the same guy. It, it, the, the differential cannot be that significant. And they're going, I don't know if he, he, he's the guy. You know why? You know what's strange? Even when you are faced with truth, when it doesn't match your view of reality, you will be blind to what's real. You will not see the truth because we are all interpreters of life. And when we, the material that we have, that we use for our interpretation, it distorts reality when it's trying to get to us. It distorts truth when it's trying to free us. I'm the man, I'm the blind guy who can now see. Well, then it becomes more confusing. Then they say, well, then how were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, that the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Pretty straightforward, right? Not complicated? Where is this man, they asked. I don't know. See, I, I, was, I was blind. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I just pointing out the obvious, okay? And they, they brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now they're adding information that seems to be irrelevant. Now the day on which Jesus had the mud, had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, why would you be confused that a blind man is the same man who now can see and that Jesus healed him by 
putting spit in dirt, making mud, putting it on his eyes and tell him to go to the Pusulum. I mean, what's so confusing about that? Well, part of the confusion is it was the Sabbath and they know that, that, that God doesn't do anything on the Sabbath because God's resting. It's a long Sabbath. It's been going on a long time and, and, and they had all of this interpretation of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is holy, and, and so, you know, if your ox falls into a ditch, you can take care of your ox. But if a human is, falling, is, is in a ditch, you just got to leave him alone until the next day. Because you, you don't do work on the Sabbath. And so God's not going to do this on the Sabbath. God's not going to heal on the Sabbath. God's not going to perform a miracle on the Sabbath. But by the way, you know what the funny thing is? They, they had not heard from God in 400 years. From Malachi to Matthew, God was silent. They had not seen one miracle in their lifetime. They're worried that a blind man was healed and given sight on the Sabbath because it was the Sabbath. But by the way, Tuesdays were not that awesome. It wasn't like God was just tearing it up on Tuesday. Thank you. Anyway, there was no like Thursday night specials. This is when Jesus shows up. Messiah's coming Thursday night. Midweek. And so they were troubled because Jesus did something on the Sabbath that really wasn't happening any day of the week. Because you see, what they would not acknowledge is their interpretation of life is God doesn't show up. So why would he do it on the Sabbath and violate our rules? See, the challenging thing about establishing a religion that tries to tell God how to act is that when God steps into history, he always violates our rules. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. You ever heard someone say, well, I'll believe in God the moment he shows up and does something? You ever heard anybody say that? Okay, if God wants me to believe in him, then just tell him to do a miracle. You, you, you would think if you were there at a miracle, it would all just make so much sense. It would be so clear. But, but here's the funny thing about it, is that there were people there and they were divided. Because they were all interpreters of life, and their interpretation didn't leave room for God. It was Einstein who said, you can either see all of life as a miracle or nothing as a miracle. I'm telling you, if you're here tonight, you're going, there is no God. Then what's going to happen is that every evidence, every proof of God, every sign of God, every act of God will be filtered out by your interpretation of life. And what's weird is that you don't even have to believe in God to Allow the proof of God to get to your soul. All you have to do is go, okay, I don't believe in God, but I, I want my interpretation of life to be, if there's a God out there, I want to be open to him and give him an opportunity to find me and reveal himself to me. And they're like, well, no, there's just no way God would do this. But they were divided about it. So then they turned to the blind man again. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. That's the best he could do. It wasn't bad. It was just her shooting in the middle. Good guy. <laughs> On God's side, let's call him a prophet. <laughs> they, they, they still did not believe that he had been blind. So now they're back to, nah, you're not the blind guy. <laughs> you know, we know you were born blind, but you really were not blind. So now they're back. They still did not believe he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for his parents. So they sent for his parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? Do you like the way they shifted that? 
Now, we're not saying that because he, he clearly sees now. So is he the one you say was born blind? We said it earlier, but now we're kind of backing off from that, trying to adjust our interpretation of reality. And he says, um, let me pull this one out. How is it now that he can see? Well, here it is. We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. (laughs) He's still living at home. But uh, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Oh, I want you to notice this. You see, your interpretation of life will be shaped by everything you fear. It'll be shaped by all your doubts. It'll be shaped by all your failures, all your wounds, all your disappointments. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you realize the conversation was bigger than just you and them? Like, have you ever said something to someone and then they just blew up on you? They went nuclear. And you were just like, you just, how, how was your day? What? What do you mean by that? You know, how, how was your day? What are, what are you asking? And you go, no, I'm just asking. You know, I mean, the other day I, I went home and, uh, and I, I said to Kim, hey, hey honey, did, did, did you cook dinner? And she looked at me like she was going to burn a hole through me. <laughs> she said, so we're going there, huh? <laughs> and, and, and I said, no, no, I, I, was just, I, I was just asking if you, like, made dinner. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you know, we, we, you know, we can order pizza or something else. And, and I realized, whoa, back off, back off. You know, see, there's a lot of things, guys, you should never say. <laughs> you know, I should have started with, do you want me to take you out? And then she could say, oh, I cooked dinner. You go, really? (laughs) It's so unexpected. Oh, you can't say that either because of you. What? You don't expect me to cook, huh? That's what you're saying? So you have to be really, really careful. Because, you see, communication is complex because you're not just having a conversation with that person in that moment. You're having a conversation with that person with every conversation they've ever had and every moment in their life. It's called marriage. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why you keep fighting with someone when it's not worth fighting? And you don't know what's going on inside of you. Have you ever dated someone? And she just keeps blaming you for something you haven't done yet. And she keeps acting as if you've betrayed her, but you've never betrayed her. But you see, you don't realize you're standing in the place where every man who ever betrayed her stood. And she's not simply having a conversation with you. She's having a conversation with every man who ever broke her heart. Have you ever tried to convince her? That you love her and you're for her and that you're going to be there for her. But it doesn't matter what you do. It just goes wrong. You don't realize that, that, that you're both projecting all the relationships that ever disappointed you. That's why when you get married a second time and a third time, it's so difficult. It is. Because you see, that new husband, he's not simply responsible for what he's doing as a husband. He's guilty for everything your first husband did. And your second husband. And, and she's not guilty for anything yet, but you hold her guilty for everything your first wife did to break your heart, betray your love. 
and lose your trust. By, by the way, that's why sometimes it's so hard in places like here at Mosaic. Because the moment you come into a space that is church, the, the moment we begin to engage the scriptures and have a conversation about God and talk about Jesus, all of a sudden you, you don't even understand what's going on. You feel all the past. You, you feel the times you were in church and you felt so isolated and alone. You, you feel that person in church that judged you and condemned you. You feel those moments in church where people use the name of God to harm you where they used guilt and shame to demean you and diminish you, and, and you don't even know why you don't trust us, because you don't even know us. But it's because we're standing in the place of all the conversations your soul's been having, and you put us in your interpretation of life, because we're all interpreters. And his parents said, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but because they were afraid, that's all they cared to know. Because they were too afraid to know any more than that. It says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. I love this line. It's so hypocritical. They don't want to know the truth. They want him to betray the truth and embrace the lie that makes their world work better. So give glory to God by telling the truth. And he says, we know this man is a sinner. That's what they know. That's their interpretation of life. They were so wrong. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. I'm not going to argue with you about your interpretation of life, but I'm just going to throw this in. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So <laughs> deal with that. That's what I know. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? I can just feel their anxiety. How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this next line. Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him, which means no, <laughs> and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. Oh, but here's the problem. But God never spoke to them. And they were angry and incensed. Why would God come to a blind beggar? And not to them. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. <laughs> you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Whoa, we're, we're back here again. <laughs> and, uh, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is just a blind man's perspective, but now I see. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. There it is. Remember the opening of this conversation? Jesus, master, why is this man born? Why is this man blind? His sins or his parents' sins? So you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
It's been 2,000 years, and the narrative has barely changed. The church is still known for condemnation and judgment. The story of Jesus is still being interpreted through a movement where God is seen as a warden and prison guard. The church is known more for declaring the guilt and shame of the world rather than the freedom of life of Jesus. We've got to bring this to an end. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? They threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. By the way, Jesus ruins a lot of people's lives. I'm just telling you, you know, they threw him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I love that Jesus said, you have now seen him. What beautiful words to a man born blind, that he has seen God. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So you decide, are you blind or guilty? What's your interpretation of life? What I find in this process of creating a life that is a work of art is that we try over and over again to create a better life, but we keep using the same bad material. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm starting all over again. I'm doing this thing new. I'm beginning a new life. I'm starting a fresh life. Have you ever just like put the stake in the ground and say, today is the beginning of the rest of my life and I'm starting anew. And then you realize you just kept creating the old. You ever been frustrated going, how many times do I have to start over again until I finally get it right? See, here's the problem is that when you interpret your life, You're bringing in all the material from the past, all the bitterness, all the anger, all the jealousy, all the envy, all the the doubt, all the fear, all the hurt, all the wounds, and you bring all of that into this moment, and you try to create a new future with old material from a broken past. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to free us from the material that keeps stealing from us our tomorrow. He wants to make a better you a better life, a better world. And the only way he can do that is if you allow him to take all of that broken material, all that rubble, all that pain, all that junk in your soul, and you place it at his feet and you go, I I can't work with this material to create a better life, Jesus. I need you to take it. I I think Jesus is like um, great like wasabi and ginger at a high-end sushi bar. Because right, I remember when I first, I love wasabi. I, was like, oh, I love it when it explodes in your head and you're almost going to die. It's, it's like, the, it's, like it's a Japanese version of brain freeze, right? <clears throat> and I always say, what's ginger for? And they go, oh, it's a palate cleanser. I just always feel good saying that. It's a palate cleanser, right? You know? Because after you taste something amazing, don't you just want that to linger, that taste? And then you take the palate cleanser so that you can actually be prepared for the next great flavor. 
Occasionally, I eat some sushi, and I go, oh, I shouldn't have tried that. And that ginger is really helpful. <laughs> because now I'm not ruined for the evening. I can be prepared for the toro, the yellowtail, the tuna that's coming my way. And Jesus is like that ginger that cleanses our palate. He cleans us from all the bitterness and all the anger. He cleans us and from all the shame and all the guilt. And he prepares us to live the life he created us to live, to be both a work of art and an artist at work. And the interpretation that matters. If 20 years ago I had said the word Titanic, Before you were born, you would have said greatest naval tragedy in modern history, Titanic. Nobody wants the Titanic. But now, since James Cameron, he reinterpreted the entire Titanic. It's no longer the greatest tragedy on the ocean. It is now the greatest love story on blue waters. And the, the question still remains, why didn't she move over on the raft? Because <laughs> love is all about sacrifice. <laughs> It's amazing how one reinterpretation of the story can change our view forever. A hundred years from now, I don't even know if they're going to know that Titanic was a real story of a real ship that went down in a real tragedy. All the Titanic will ever be known for is, I'm king of the world! They go, yeah, the Titanic. It must have been awesome to be there, to be king of the world. Yeah, that, that's sort of like the story. See, what Jesus does, he steps in, he starts rewriting your story, and he helps you begin to interpret your story with hope, and to interpret your story with faith, and to interpret your story with love. And all of a sudden, you begin filtering your life through this new material where you see beauty all around you. I'm telling you, some of you are waking up in the morning, and you cannot find a reason to live. Some of you are waking up in the morning and you feel like your life is such a curse. Some of you are waking up in the morning and you just feel like life is a drudgery. It's a hardship. And you, just, you just would cry out to God to give you a different life, to give you a life that has beauty and wonder, to be filled with adventure and inspiration. And I'm telling you, your life is already filled with all that. You just can't see it because your interpretation is blocking out that which is beautiful and good and true and wonderful and awe-inspiring that would open up your soul and cause you to fall on your face and worship God and say, God, thank you for such a beautiful life in a beautiful world. Remember, all art is your interpretation of life. And if you interpret life as a bitter pill, there's a cross to bear. There's an ocean of despair to swim across. That's the world you will create. That's all you can create. But if you see life as an adventure filled with possibilities, if you see life as a gift filled with beauty, if you see life as an adventure of faith,
where God elevates your courage and your character to face every challenge. That's what your life will be, and that's the world you will create. So yesterday I was in Canada, and on Thursday night I did this book tour thing at this cafe restaurant. It was so cool. And the place was just filled with people who did not know God, and they came to hear about the artisan soul and, and, and about this narrative that all human beings are artists, that we're all creative, and that we're designed by God to create the future. And it was a great conversation. They, they warned me. They said, there's this really, really intelligent, really, really powerful woman named Char, and she's Sikh from India. And she doesn't really like hearing people talk about spiritual stuff. So she'll probably walk out on you. In fact, they said she's walked out on everyone that we've ever brought her to hear. So I was preparing. They said, don't take it personally, but it seemed personal. Right, you know, and so I was kind of preparing myself, and so I, I did my talk on, on the artisan soul, and, and then I did a, a Q&A, and she stayed through the talk, and she stayed through the q and I was feeling really good. And then I did about an hour book signing, and she stayed through that. And then afterwards, we began having a conversation. I thought, I think she wants to talk. And we started having this really beautiful spiritual conversation and she told me she was a Sikh and I know a bit about the Sikh religion and culture and so I started telling her everything I knew and I think it was a great connecting point and and she starts telling me her story and it was really beautiful her interpretation of life and then this well-meaning follower of Christ jumped in and just started projecting her story on on Char's story and the conversation just sort of died and the time kind of came to a close and what seemed to be a natural conversation came to an end and so I went back to my room and and I got an email the next morning saying, hey, Char wants to have lunch with you. And I thought, oh, I was going to try to catch up on some rest and work. And, but, I, but because she's a Sikh and because she's not a, a follower of Christ, I, I want to do this. And because she's intelligent and thoughtful and interesting. And so I thought, okay, I'll do this, even though I'm tired. And, and when I got to the restaurant, I realized they told her, Erwin wants to have lunch with you. <laughs> and, and so I thought she wanted to meet with me. And she thought I wanted to meet with her. And the other people conjured this up. It was like a blind God date, <laughs> right? And so I, 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 did, I didn't want to expose the fact that I, I, I didn't know. And so we just started talking, and she was talking to me about her background, her faith, her beliefs, her culture. And, and, but she also told me, well, my brother was into witchcraft when we were growing up, and so we were into you know, black magic, and I loved my brother and respected him, so I was a witch, and I practiced, and... She goes, and on top of that, I was born on Halloween. And she goes, and every Halloween, these spirits come and torment me. And I don't know what to do about that. And her husband, who was a new follower of Christ, he goes, I keep telling her, just say, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And, and I go, I, I, that's so well-meaning, but it's not going to help. And they said, why? And I said, well, Charlie, it would only work if you actually believed in Jesus and belonged to him. She goes, well, that, that makes sense. And I said, but good try. And, uh, you know, and, and then we were about to order. The waitress came, and, and, and I thought, I don't want to talk about spirits and demons while I'm eating lunch. It just... So I, I looked at her and I said, Char, you don't want to leave here today without giving your life to Jesus, right? She goes, no, I don't. I said, okay. That's what I thought. So why don't we have lunch, and after lunch, we'll talk about it, and we'll make sure that happens before you leave. She goes, Okay. And all the people there were like, what? You can't, you, you, yeah, you just had an appointment. You know, after dessert, we'll make sure you meet God. It's just, it's all right. And, and 
So we ordered our food, we had a great meal, we talked about so many interesting things, and then when she took her last bite of salad, she just turned to me like a shark going after a seal, and she goes, okay. And I realized she was ready. And I said, okay, let's talk about this like spirits thing. And I don't know what your interpretation of spiritual things are, but I'm just gonna let your own interpretation deal with this. She said, yeah, these spirits, they come and they torment me on Halloween. I don't know what to do. I said, it's because when you used to practice witchcraft, you opened up your soul to spirits. And you may not realize it, but you gave the key to your house to those spirits. And though you've tried to send them away, you don't want them back, they can come and go as they want because they have the key to your house. She goes, that makes sense. I said, but if you give your life to Jesus, the living God will come to dwell in you. And he only comes in when you give him ownership of the house. And when you give him ownership of the house, he changes the locks. She goes, oh. And I said, then when all those spirits and demons come back, the key doesn't work. Now they're gonna bang on the windows and bang on the doors, but they can't get in. And I said, on top of that, your house, it's on Jesus' property. And to get to your house, they gotta go through Jesus' house and ask him if they can go to your house and he's not gonna let it happen. She goes, I got it. So I said, wouldn't it be great right now, sitting in this restaurant, just to give Jesus your house? Just let Jesus come to dwell within you, be your God. And she goes, well, do I have to call myself a Christian? I go, no. All you have to say is Jesus is God and I will follow him. No turning back. She goes, I can do that. So right there, this brilliantly intelligent, beautiful Sikh woman invites Jesus to take her life, to change the locks, to be the owner of her house so that she could have a relationship with him forever. And I realized in that moment, Jesus just changed the interpretation of everything. See, there's some of you here tonight, you've been trying to make sense of life, and you've been trying to make sense of your pain, and you've been trying to make sense of your questions, and it just hasn't made any sense. And your life is like looking at an abstract, you're going, what does it mean? And you look in the mirror, and you look at your face, and you're looking at your life, and you're looking at your choices, and you're going, what does this mean? See, that's what Jesus comes to do. He doesn't just come to make you a work of art. He brings meaning to his work. And when he makes you his work of art, he brings meaning to your life. He brings intention to your life. And I want you to know that when you trust Jesus with your life and you become his work of art, he begins to express what's in his soul, in his essence, and everything that is good and everything that is beautiful and everything that is true, God will speak it into your life and begin to make you that kind of work of art. And then this God will have so much trust in what he's doing in you that he's going to call you to be an artist at work. Because what the world needs, the world needs people like you who are fully alive in Jesus, who become disruptors of the status quo and affect the way everyone interprets the world. See, they need you to be alive. So that when religion has settled and captured people, you walk into that room and you go, I don't know. You're going to have to explain the rest of it. I just thought I was blind, and now I see. You work out the difference. But what you can't deny is that I'm not who I was. 
What you can't deny is that I've met God. What you cannot deny is that God has tapped into our space and changed everything for us. It's time. It's time for us to set humanity free. You know, the narrative has to change. Just like Cameron changed Titanic, it's time for us to change the narrative about the scriptures. Where once it was this manuscript of conformity, it must become our manifesto for creativity. And that's why for me, writing The Artisan's Soul was so important. Because I know it's time we let people see Jesus for who he really is. We need to change the language. We need to let people know that God is the creative God, the creator God, the beautiful God, the imaginative God, the God who strikes with his brush and creates beauty and wonder in the universe. And he speaks and he creates us. And we become not figments of his imagination, but fulfillments of his imagination. It's time we let the world know that they're created in the image and likeness of God and that they are born by God to imagine and create a more beautiful life in a more beautiful world because you're supposed to be a more beautiful self. And if you're here tonight, if you're here tonight and you're tired of trying to make yourself what you were created to be by yourself, and if tonight you understand you need God and that Jesus came into this world, was crucified, buried, raised from the dead so that you could live, so that you could be the work of God and do the work of God. Then I'm gonna ask you to do something really hard right now. If you're here tonight and say, I need Jesus. I don't have all the answers. I don't even know if I know all the questions. I just know that I was, in a sense, born blind and I need God in my life. I need Jesus in my life. I want him to see me. I want him to receive me. I want Jesus in my life. I want to be free. I want to create and I want God to paint something beautiful in my life. If that's you and tonight you would say, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I just want you to stand up right now. I know it's hard. People ask you, make it easier, Erwin. I don't want to make it easier. Awesome. Just stand up right now. Just remain standing right now. Just stand up right now wherever you are. That's awesome. Just stand up right now. Over here. Awesome. Just stand up right now wherever you are. This is your moment right now. Just stand up wherever you are. This is why we're here right now. You feel what Jesus is doing right now. He's creating something new in you right now. Just stand up right now. That's you. Just stand up right now. Just say, Jesus, make it your canvas right now. Be the work of art that God wants you to be right now. Anyone else? Just stand right now. Just stand right now. Okay. Now what I want to do right now, because I know this is a, a beautifully awkward moment, you know, we have to choose to follow God by ourselves, but we don't enter that life to be alone. So I, I just want, I don't want to lose you right now, so I just want to pray for you first, okay? And I just want to lead you in a quick prayer. Father, I just thank you for those who've stood up right now. And I pray that right now, Jesus, you would wrap them up in your love. Let them know that you see them. I pray that right now, God, you would set them free and give them life and let them be filled with love. And I pray that right now, God, the, the prayer, the, the cry of their heart would be, Jesus, I give myself to you. Through your death on the cross, through your resurrection, Jesus, we just declare their freedom tonight. If you're standing, just pray these words to God right now with me. Dear God, I need you. I give my life to you. I need your love. 
I need your forgiveness. I need your life in me. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the dead. So I give myself to you. I will follow you, no turning back. I belong to you. I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your life in me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic. Your sacrifice makes this podcast possible and creates life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading this message around the world by going to mosaic.org slash give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.